back to Peace in Their Time, episode 81, The Years of Revolution, part one. All right, I spent the past three weeks setting up Tsarist Russia. I think it's more than high time to go over how it all came crashing down. Since the end of the great reforms in the 1860s, the autocracy had been going from error to error without the self-awareness to see what kind of a mess they were creating. They had, up to 1904, been able to paper over everything with repressive force and presenting an image of absolute power sufficient to cow anyone thinking of challenging the existing order. But upon meeting an external challenge that couldn't be overcome so easily, the internal problems finally broke out into the open. I already covered the Russo-Japanese War back in episode 54, and I don't intend to go over the course of that conflict again in great detail. And from the Russian perspective, the most interesting part of that war is how it brought the Tsarist state to the brink of collapse. The war came about because as part of Russia's modernization efforts, the Far East was suddenly within the grasp of the government in St. Petersburg. The opening of the Trans-Siberian Railway in 1903 provided a kinda quick land connection to the empire's most distant and heretofore isolated reaches. And as we all know, where there was opportunity for expansion, Russia was going to seize on it. I've already labored enough over the Qing Empire's weaknesses on this show, and suffice to say that weakness provided the Russians with an irresistible vacuum to step into. They had already annexed Outer Manchuria in 1860 and were sizing up the southern part of that region, plus modern Mongolia by the end of the 1800s. What the Russians didn't count on was the emergence of a new center of power right in northeastern Asia. The rise of Japan was a rapid one, and the Europeans, among them Russia, did not properly appreciate their potential at first. It was only in the aftermath of the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95 that Russia moved to curtail this new player. Japan's victory over China was so complete that they threatened to cut off Russia from expanding further south. To head this off, Russia secured the backing of France and Germany to force Japan to return many of their gains and established Russia as the dominant imperial force on the northeast portion of the Asian mainland. The Russian government, including the usually clear-headed Sergei Vitya, regarded Russia's position there as unassailable from the Japanese, what with them being Asian and the Russians not being Asian. This racist attitude was shared by the Tsar Nicholas, who, in addition to being a fierce anti-Semite, also discounted any non-whites in the world as well. He especially hated the Japanese, as during a tour of their country during his youth, he had been attacked by a crazed assailant and almost stabbed to death. From that point on, he would regard the people as a group of quote-unquote monkeys and treat them as such in his foreign policy. Antagonizing the Japanese, though, was another mistake in a long line of mistakes up to that point. The intervention of Russia into Manchuria and Korea alarmed Tokyo that they were a problem that would have to be dealt with eventually. And after a decade of steady military buildup, the Japanese felt ready to take the Russians on militarily. The Russians, for their part, assured of their own superiority, ignored the buildup and continued expanding their reach into China, establishing a shortcut for the Trans-Siberian over northern Manchuria and establishing a naval base at Port Arthur in the south. Russia had also deployed tens of thousands of troops there, ostensibly to help secure China in the aftermath of the Boxer Rebellion, but obviously to keep a strong Russian presence in the region on a permanent basis. The Japanese found this unacceptable and spent the better part of a year negotiating with Russia to have them draw their forces down and also come to a mutually acceptable accommodation over Korea. The Russians stonewalled and dismissed Japan's position, indicating that Japan could expect to get nothing in the most insulting and arrogant terms possible. 
which was partly based on Nicholas's belief that he would have German support in any conflict with Japan. Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany encouraged this thinking, as Russia going after Japan, an ally of the UK, would split those two nations. Plus, it'd distract Nicholas from fussing about the Balkans if he was stuck out in the Far East. As it happened, Germany wouldn't provide assistance to Russia, something that would annoy Nicholas greatly and leave him ready to double down on his Balkan ambitions less than a decade later. Another factor explaining the poor form of the Russian diplomats was that its delegation to Japan was led by a noble who had investments in Korean lumber interests. So he didn't want to compromise with the Japanese over that country out of simple self-interest. The Japanese eventually got tired of being stonewalled and launched their surprise attack on Port Arthur on February 8, 1904, which damaged a pair of battleships and some lighter vessels. It wasn't by any means a knockout blow, but it did have a psychological impact. The commander of the Russian Far East fleet felt after the attack that his forces were too weak to challenge the Japanese, and thereafter remained in port. The surprise attack also startled the Russian leadership, as the haughty nobles were shocked that an Asian power had the temerity to launch that first blow. One benefit of the war for the autocracy was that the outbreak of the war brought the nation together, or at least the part of the nation who kept abreast of news reports and political life. Turns out, even the liberals and left of the country didn't like an Asian nation attacking their country and threw in their support. This was actually kind of a sticking point as even socialists and SRs got behind the government. Their reasoning was that it was to secure the favor of the government towards political reform, and also partly because they feared the intentions of an Asiatic imperial power as well. A group of 13 Zemsvos even got together and independently outfitted a medical brigade to help the wounded, an effort spearheaded by one Prince Lvov, who thereafter became a national hero. The regime welcomed the support and figured the prestige of a victory could stave off the increasing demands for reform. Now, it's easy to get a quick boost of popular support after going to war, but after the honeymoon is over, you do have to actually win the damn thing. And that's where Nicholas and his government started running into trouble. It was 6,000 miles from St. Petersburg to Port Arthur, and the only conduit connecting the Eastern Army was the Trans-Siberian Railroad. Its construction was indeed a very impressive feat and was the only reason the Russians could be competitive in the war in the first place. Unfortunately, it was only a single railroad and therefore had a cap on how many men and how much material could be shipped along it. The Russians had a ceiling for how much they could support, and over the course of the war would face critical shortages in weapons and ammunition. And if you recall from episode 54, the Russian army was badly outclassed by the Japanese and by the start of the summer 1904 had retreated from Korea and the southernmost part of Manchuria, leaving the garrison in Port Arthur under siege. The military defeats and word of the horrendous casualties started making their way back to Russia proper and ignited a firestorm of indignation. The political opposition correctly saw it as the same ineffectual leadership that had plagued the nation for decades, and it was now getting their sons killed in distant fields. The Tsar, of course, didn't help as he ignored the bloodletting, and in one notably bad PR move, sent Eastern Orthodox icons to the troops as gifts. The public was less than impressed and preferred he send them proper equipment. In July 1904, just five months into the war, the SR combat organization I discussed last week assassinated the Minister of the Interior, one of the nation's most important posts, via a pre-planted bomb. The public response was muted without a whole lot of outrage, and it became obvious that government ministers were back on the menu. 
The Tsar at least understood the growing opposition, if only because he too was frustrated with the war's poor progress, and appointed one Prince Mirsky as the replacement minister of the interior in August. That office was basically handling the internal administration of the empire, which included provincial administrations and the police force. Mirsky was sympathetic to the liberals' calls for reform, but knew damn well that Nicholas wasn't going to give an inch. Which was bad, because the liberals were well aware of the potential powers of Mirsky's new position, and expected his appointment was going to lead to, well, anything, really. Just some kind of reform, some kind of break with what was happening. Mirsky figured he could get away with the modest step of recognizing a National Assembly of Zemsvos, basically a parliament, or if you want to use the Russian word, a Duma. Which would have been easy to do, since unofficially the Zemsvos had already assembled a national council between them. The group was strictly unofficial and informal, but they were already talking to each other and starting to act in concert. A representative government, too, could be useful to take some heat off the Tsar. As autocrat, Nicholas was the last stop of responsibility for any government decision, so maybe shifting some of that burden could be handy. But Nicholas didn't allow himself to comprehend the idea. When Mirsky explained the use of setting up a national Zemsvo group, Nicholas merely nodded and said it'd be useful to solve the veterinarian issues facing the country's farm animals. Which, uh, was not the direction everyone else was thinking. Mirsky stressed that the people could turn to revolution if a representative government wasn't formed to help manage the government, to which Nicholas merely went quiet and, well, changed the topic of conversation. Mirsky went ahead with the idea without he or Nicholas having a clear idea what such a group was supposed to do or what its powers were supposed to be. Between the 6th and 9th of November 1904, a little over a hundred representatives from various Zemsvos would meet up in the apartments of Vladimir Nabokov, whose son of the same name would become a famous writer. This unleashed a tidal wave of excitement for everyone who was politically engaged in the country. Even the conservative landholders started talking about a national assembly of some kind. Political and social groups organized banquets across St. Petersburg to give a forum for political speeches, and crowds there would chant, down with the autocracy, and give us a constitution. This went on all through November 1904, and the atmosphere in the capital turned electric, as everyone could feel that something was about to happen. Mirsky felt it too, and meekly reported to Nicholas what the opinions of the Zemsvo Assembly had been. The actual recommendations weren't too bad, basically a call for representative government, with the most far-reaching suggestion being a place for the new body to influence the state ministers. Uh, the part that really stuck in Nicholas's craw, though, was the statement that Russia could no longer be managed as a personal possession of the Tsar. This challenge set Nicholas against the proposals, and in a huff, he declared on December 12th that he would never agree to a representative government, as he considered it harmful to the people whom God had entrusted to him. He did say that the Zemsvos, as they were, would get more power and the press would have a little more freedom, but did not say anything regarding an actual elected National Assembly. Mirsky was badly demoralized by how out of touch the decree was, knowing that it would merely provoke more opposition, and said, Everything has failed. Let us build jails. And he wasn't wrong. The political situation spiraled out of control, and as the new year dawned, unrest broke out in the capital. From January 3rd to the 8th, 120,000 workers went on strike. Events came to a head on January 9th, 1905. 150,000 workers and their families gathered that Sunday after church services in St. Petersburg and began marching towards the Winter Palace. 
Their intent was to appeal to the Tsar directly and ask him to improve their work and living conditions and end the war. They were led by one Father Gapon, who was a populist leader among the proletariat. Gapon had taken to preaching and tending to the sufferings of the urban proletariat, encouraging them to better their lives, but also reinforcing traditional norms like faith in the Orthodox Church and loyalty to the Tsar. These activities were known to the state, and he had been supported in his efforts. The regime had made efforts to set up state-sponsored trade unions in order to better control the urban workers, which superficially resembled the same kind of organization set up in fascist Italy, actually. These unions wouldn't rock the boat and would give the state levers of control over their members. Capon wasn't a completely compromised agent of the state, though, and thought the mass demonstration would get through to Nicholas and actually help his flock. However, as it turned out, he didn't quite have the measure of Nicholas or his government. He also might not have understood the passions amongst his followers that he was unleashing. He had spent the days before the ninth whipping them into a frenzy, which unnerved his handlers. They asked him to call off plans for a march, but Capon, thinking that he was protected by both God and the Tsar, refused. The authorities responded by bringing in over 10,000 troops on the eve of the march. Despite the frigid temperatures and presence of armed troops, the workers believed things would work out peacefully. This crowd was not your bang-for-blood type group that would become more common later. They believed in the Tsar just as much as Capon. Unfortunately, they never reached him. They approached the Narva Gate, which was a Russian facsimile of the Arc de Triomphe, and marked where the more well-to-do portion of town began. Troopers were waiting for them with orders to fire into the crowd. The first move came when a cavalry unit charged and scattered some of the crowd, but not nearly enough to turn them back. So the infantry stepped up and opened fire. The first two volleys were fired over the crowd's heads, but in a mass so huge there was no hope of dispersing before the soldiers fired the next one into the marchers. And then the next one. And then the next one. Marchers all over the city were fired upon, and cavalry began charging through the streets. But instead of an immediate rout, the massacres merely encouraged more people, especially among the radical workers and students, to enter the fray. The soldiers, though, did not hold back. One notably grisly example of violence was that of a little girl climbing on an iron fence to get a look of the action, only to catch a bullet and then impale herself on the fence. Father Capon had been knocked down by cavalry and was reported to have moved about the carnage in a kind of stupor, muttering to himself, there is no czar, over and over again. The crowds went on a rampage through Nevsky Prospect, looting and tearing apart the hoity-toity shops that serviced the wealthy that had exploited them so relentlessly. The crowds started off unarmed, but they got what they could, bricks, clubs, anything, and hunted down any soldier or cop they could pick off. Reportedly over 200 died, 800 were wounded, although I'll caution you that the true figures probably will never be confirmed. With St. Petersburg in chaos, Capon found refuge in the apartment of the writer and revolutionary Maxim Gorky. Gorky arranged for some theater friends of his to give Capon a haircut and fashion him a disguise in order to flee. Capon, though, made one last public appearance to condemn the Tsar that night, only fleeing once the crowd recognized who he was. Capon would flee first for Finland, then Switzerland, then finally London. He doesn't really do anything of note afterwards. He didn't fit in amongst the other revolutionary exiles, and eventually figured he could resume his job as a state-sponsored outreach guy. He returned to Russia in 1906 and foolishly revealed his state employment to some SR combat organization types he had linked up with. 
He was wanting to get one of their leaders to work with the state tactically, but the group turned around and hanged him in April 1906. All in all, the day had been a disaster for the regime. In less than 24 hours, the old myth that Tsar was a good man and merely surrounded by evil ministers was dispelled. The autocracy were all evil men, and ones that had to be fought if Russia had any hope for the future. Even for members of the intelligentsia that had comfortable lives and favored moderate reform, all they had to do was look out their doors and windows and see the nature of the beast they hoped to moderate. Radicalization was quick to follow what became Russia's Bloody Sunday. Case in point was Maxim Gorky. I mentioned a moment ago that he was a revolutionary, which in 1905 might have been stretching it a little. He was one of Russia's most successful and acclaimed writers active at the time, and had lived amongst the lowest social strata and used their experiences in his work. And up to that point, he had been supportive of members of the RSDLP and other Marxist groups, but the events of January 9th prompted him to shift his support over to, specifically, the Bolsheviks and Lenin. In that faction, he saw the group willing to take the drastic action he now believed was necessary to save the Russian people. His support was much sought after by the Bolsheviks, as his high literary status was a boon to their own PR, and even when he became more disillusioned with them after 1917, they spent a not inconsiderable amount of time trying to patch up their relations with him. Which, given the Bolsheviks' tendency to play hardball with everyone, uh, shows just how much esteem he was held in. The rest of the country were not blind to events in the capital either. After the massacre, more than 400,000 industrial workers across the country went on strike. The problem the workers were going to run into, and this should now be a familiar one for listeners of this podcast, was that there wasn't a plan or a leadership to take advantage of the supercharged atmosphere. All of the big names in the RSDLP were in exile, and the lieutenants who remained behind and active were not of the caliber to lead a revolution. No, the political pushback was going to have to come from the liberals at first. Which isn't to say they weren't angry as all hell either, they definitely were. In April, the Zemsvo leaders got together again for a second congress and again demanded a national assembly. The nation's unions also banded together into a union of unions, with the uh, express purpose of supporting those efforts to start a national assembly. Even more middle-class occupations like lawyers and doctors, not known for labor organization, started forming their own unions to join this overgroup and add their support. Out in the countryside, the peasants started smelling blood. They organized strikes calling for better wages while working another landholder's fields, and they trespassed on the landed nobility's property. The worst came in summer 1905 during another periodic crop failure, when the peasants simply invaded the country manors, looting and burning them down. 3,000 manors were destroyed in the frenzy, representing a solid 15% in the entire nation. The communes effectively cut themselves off from the state, driving away the petty officials who oversaw their activities and collected taxes. That isn't to say they were cut off from the rest of the nation, though. Many of the bigger villages organized unions of their own, which in turn worked with neighboring groups that effectively became self-governing units. Their primary political aim was supporting representative reforms that were being discussed by the Zemsfos. And it wasn't like this was happening just in the backwaters, either. One of the major peasant governments set itself up only 80 miles outside of Moscow, for example. This was an unforeseen nightmare for the autocracy, and they did not respond kindly to the uprisings. The army was deployed to restore order, and did so violently. 
This kind of internal security, though, was not exactly what a mass conscription army was designed for, and morale started breaking down. Mutinies became a common sight, and soldiers refused to fire on their peasant brethren. This dissent affected a third of the army deployed internally, which wasn't enough to stop the regime from cracking down, but it did reveal they had a big problem on their hands, and the army would have to be deployed until 1907 and putting down the revolts. And just in case anybody has forgotten, there was still the war with Japan raging, and it was not going well. Back on January 2nd, 1905, just a week before Bloody Sunday, Port Arthur had fallen to the Japanese and the remaining garrison was taken prisoner. The Russian Pacific Fleet had largely been destroyed by that time as well. Further north, there was still a stalemate in southern Manchuria as the Japanese lacked the strength to overcome Russian defenses, but the troops were increasingly done with the war. The Tsar could maybe have eked out a token loss and wound things down, but he had sent his Baltic fleet on a harebrained journey from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok. The original destination was supposed to be Port Arthur, but the journey was a solid seven months long, and the port fell partway into the trip. The Russian fleet, in dire need of an overhaul after the trip, was caught out by the Japanese in the Straits of Tsushima and completely destroyed, which itself didn't change things on the ground in Manchuria, but made Nicholas look like an absolute fool and crushed any lingering support there was for the war. Then, on June 14, 1905, the crew of the battleship Potumkin in the Black Sea mutinied. The troops had been served spoiled meat, and that turned out to be a final straw. They killed some officers, took the ship, and raised the red flag. Handy that they had a red flag just laying around for that moment. They sailed into the port of Odessa, inspiring an uprising that was put down with soldiers, resulting in 2,000 dead and 3,000 wounded there. The crew took off and tried to get the rest of the Black Sea fleet to go along with them, but they were rebuffed and so they decided to stop over into Romania. They handed over the ship in exchange for safe passage into exile, which was probably the happiest ending they could have hoped for given the circumstances. The perimeter of the empire also went into revolt as well. Non-violent resistance broke out all across Finland, the highly industrialized city of Riga was paralyzed by strikes, Mensheviks managed to seize control of much of western Georgia, and hundreds of thousands of Poles protested the government, openly hailing the Japanese victories. Pilsudski even made a trip to Japan to float the idea of them supporting Poland's independence. They turned him down, but it was a sign that people were starting to think big. The empire wobbled and seemed on the brink of collapse. Not that Nicholas noticed too much. He was being told by courtiers that Bloody Sunday was a foreign plot and seemed not to understand the massive and overwhelming unrest that was disintegrating his own regime. He did replace Mirsky as Minister of the Interior only a couple weeks after Bloody Sunday, though, this time appointing Alexander Beligan. Beligan, to his credit, immediately told Nicholas that concessions had to be made, to which Nicholas said it sounded like a revolution was breaking out, to which Beligan very astutely replied, Your Majesty, the revolution has already begun. Nicholas was surprised enough that he publicly agreed on February 18, 1905, to authorize ideas be submitted for reforms, which was all extremely vague and promised nothing, which was the entire point as Nicholas was getting ready to dig in and defy popular opinion yet again. He kicked back and allowed the empire to descend into chaos through most of the year, and only in August did he make a move. By this time, the people were ready for some major concessions from their ruler. However, by August, a peace treaty with the Japanese was being concluded, and the million-odd soldiers in Manchuria could start being shipped back home to help prop the regime back up. Nicholas, on August 6th, 
offered a representative body to consult with him as Tsar. That was it. It didn't have real power, and was totally dependent on the good graces of Nicholas, which he was lacking in. It also only allowed a tiny fraction, less than a percent, of the country to vote for that quasi-Duma. The liberals appeared to give it a shot, but this was August 1905, and the left was starting to get its stuff together. Strikes became more violent, protesters in the streets became far rowdier, and support for the far-left soared as it appeared the liberals were shrinking from meaningful change. The big power play from the proletariat came with a general strike on October 10th. Okay, it actually really started with a strike among the railway workers, and after that paralyzed the country real good, everybody else joined in to support them. The lights went out in St. Petersburg. Food shipments stopped. Crime exploded in the dark. Moscow's sewage system notably broke down. On October 17th, the Union of Unions and the Mensheviks formed the Petersburg Soviet. They didn't know it at the time, but this was going to be big. For the first time, the far left and the urban proletariat were starting to put together a mechanism to actually provide representation for themselves. Now, Soviet simply means council, and at that time didn't carry the same significance as it might to a modern listener. And this was actually Trotsky's moment to leap ahead of the RSDLP pack, as he returned to Russia and became a de facto leader of that group. The Soviet was established to coordinate worker and political action and present a united front to the authorities. Not that Nicholas was prepared to recognize such a group, although he tolerated its existence for the moment while he weighed his options. He talked about the situation with Sergei Vitya, who told him to either appoint a dictator to rule on his behalf and restore the situation, or make a real Duma. Nicholas wanted to do the dictator thing, but the only viable candidate was his uncle, the Grand Duke Nikolai. Nikolai, to his credit, turned his nephew down flatly and even threatened to blow his own brains out if the responsibility was forced onto him. Nicholas had to go with Plan B and allow a representative government. On October 17th, Nicholas issued the October Manifesto, which granted Russia the freedoms of speech and assemblage and an elected Duma representative of the nation that would need to provide its consent to any future laws. It was the last delaying tactic Nicholas had, as he fully intended to renege on those promises, but for the moment, the decree went forward. The people were understandably jubilant, and for the rest of 1905, there would be a huge upsurge in political activity, including leftist groups suddenly being able to get their message out without interference, uh, for a time. The liberals sorted themselves into the conservative Octoberist party and the center-slash-center-left cadets. The Octoberists were those happy with the reforms, the cadets were those who wanted to push for more. In practice, there was little difference as both groups backed off Nicholas in October. The already active leftist groups rushed to spread their connections with the proletariat. That being said, while the SRs and RSDLP certainly expanded their ranks and connections, they remained small groups compared to the liberals. Despite the October Manifesto not going quite far enough for many of the downtrodden, the liberals emerged from 1905 with their hands clean and their legitimacy as the most qualified leadership still intact. It wouldn't be until after February 1917 that this perception would be definitively broken. There was one new group, though, I want to touch on. The Union of the Russian People, or as they were colloquially known, the Black 100s. That term comes from a very old nickname, the White 100s, who in the days of old Muscovy were the well-to-do middle class, which the Black 100s oftentimes were not, but aspired to be. 
because these guys were proto-fascists, composed of people who either felt their position in society was endangered, or that they had already lost it, or that they were denied it when they should have had something better. As a movement, it was a reaction to the far left, which was very much in keeping with future fascists rising in response to the socialists in the 20s. They believed in traditional values of faith, social standing, and the Tsar. That kind of makes them stick out as not entirely fascists, as they lack the impulse to upend society. But keep in mind, these guys looked at traditions as tools and rallying flags. They may have loved the Tsar, but that didn't mean they personally loved Nicholas. And they would start their operations by attacking the nation's Jews, starting pogroms that were noted favorably by Nicholas in his diary. And as the atmosphere kept escalating, the left prepared for a real-deal revolution before a Duma could even be assembled. That is, until the regime broke up the Petersburg Soviet on December 3, 1905. What leaders could be rounded up were imprisoned, and the Moscow revolutionaries kicked off their own uprising in a panic. The worker militias actually had initial success, uh, but stuck to holding their own districts instead of pushing on to the Kremlin and the city center. This allowed authorities time to regroup, and by December 15, 1905, the workers were being shelled in their own homes. Maxim Gorky had been among those in Moscow supporting the uprising by using his apartment there as a base, and he was forced to take the usual route through Finland and into international exile for his efforts. The uprising emboldened Nicholas, and he launched a reign of terror, scooping up and imprisoning as many dissidents as the autocracy could get its hands on. It also meant he was less inclined than ever to go along with the reforms he had just authorized. That would become clear as 1906 dawned, and the regime first regained its footing, and then started to push back. First, though, came the actual elections for the first Duma. Because of the moderate nature of the reforms meant that the Duma was clearly at the mercy of the Tsar, the SRs and RSDLP boycotted the elections. This opened the way for the cadets to score the most seats, followed by the Trudoviks, who were a peasant party who had broken from the SRs in order to partake in the election. This quick split highlighted that while the SRs were popular in their message, they had next to no party discipline. The Tsar preempted the Duma by establishing the Fundamental Laws on May 6, 1906. It was a kind of constitution, but it established the Tsar as still having absolute power, so it was more a statement to the newly elected Duma to mind itself. But despite the dominant factions of the Duma not being quite as revolutionary as they could be, they recognized that the first acts of the body would be vital as set precedent, and resolved not to let Nicholas push them around. To that end, from May to July 1906, they assailed Nicholas and his government with demands. Namely, that he would give up his executive powers and turn responsibility of the government and bureaucracy over to the Duma, as well as consent to land reforms and universal male suffrage. By mid-1906, though, events were going the autocracy's way, and Nicholas felt emboldened to not only ignore the demands, but dismissed the Duma entirely. By July, the army had been fully redeployed from the Far East, and discipline was restored. The French had also sent a massive loan that stabilized state finances and provided a huge influx of cash to invest into the nation's industries. For all the chaos of the previous couple years, the next eight were going to be ones of massive economic expansion, partly due to Russia's allies pouring in the money, which meant that the business and professional classes benefiting from that were less inclined to go after the regime. Ironic that the most republican of all European great powers, France, would be so vital to prop up the autocracy. 
but they were thinking in terms of fighting Germany, so the contradiction could be safely ignored. There was also a shift in support by the landed gentry. They had been inclined towards reform at the start of 1905, but the shocks of the peasant uprisings had driven them firmly into the autocracy's camp and balked at the demand for land reform. On July 8th, Nicholas made his move and dissolved the Duma. And not only did he dissolve the Duma, he appointed a man named Peter Stolypin as his new prime minister. Stolypin had made a name for himself as governor of the Saratov province. That region had endured more damage than anywhere else during the peasant uprisings, and it was only through his energetic leadership that the state held on there. Before that, he had served in the administration of the Kovna region in Lithuania, which is notable because that non-Russian region lacked the peasant communes found in the core of the empire, and the conditions found there convinced him that the communes were the source of much of the empire's difficulties, which was an about-face as the traditional commune life had been seen as a bedrock of the state. Stolypin advanced the theory that the communal lifestyle made those communities dangerous mechanisms for revolutionary action, something borne out at least partially in 1905. Drawing from his Kovno experiences, he proposed breaking up the communes, reallocating all farmland into permanent, private ownership. In doing so, the ties that bound the peasants would be dissolved, and they would become individualist farmers. In one move, the threat of rural uprisings would be removed, and the peasants would theoretically become more productive. But before he could remodel the nation, he had to remove the political opposition. 60,000 political dissidents were either arrested, exiled, executed, or some combination of the three. Communes were dismantled, peasants who protested or resisted were tried on the spot. The watchword of his policies was property, specifically of the private variety. Ownership that was backed by the state and therefore dependent on the state. In this way, he proposed to save the autocracy. The regime's leadership allowed for a second Duma to be convened in February 1907, but Stolypin had little patience for opposition, which is exactly what he got. The second Duma was even more radical than before, as the SRs and RSDLP dropped their boycott and scored half the seats. This Duma was even more aggressive than the previous years, and Stolypin arranged its dissolution in June 1907. This time, he changed the election laws so that only significant landholders and businessmen could get seats. This third Duma was a stunted, weak thing, but would stay in existence for the next five years. It also showed the limits of Stolypin's effectiveness, as despite basically picking the composition of the Duma, he still managed to alienate it. His reforms threatened the power of the landed gentry, and their protests were bluntly dismissed. A bigger problem for him was Russia itself, and the scale of effort demanded to implement his reforms. There simply were too many communes to break up, and by the time of his assassination in September 1911, his reforms had been applied to only a small fraction of the country. I know I just breezed through a major figure like Stolypin in, like, a minute, but for our purposes, he's just another example of even a man of vision and ability being unable to turn the empire around. After his death, his work was not picked up by anyone, and the autocracy returned to a lazy status quo. Not that it probably mattered anyway. The years between 1906 and 1914 were relatively calm on account of the regime's watchfulness and oppression, but the underlying issues that would cause its downfall would remain the same as ever. The bureaucracy was still incompetent, the expanding industrial economy was only creating an ever-larger urban proletariat living in squalid conditions, and political aspirations across the board remained frustrated. 
Nobody in the autocracy inspired confidence, and the illusions surrounding the office of the Tsar were never to be restored again. In short, all it would take would be another big crisis to bring the whole thing down. And Nicholas was happy to oblige in that. Frustrated in the Far East, he refocused on Pan-Slavism in the Balkans, committing himself to his allies Serbia and France in the hopes that a victory in Europe would restore his prestige. Instead, it would destroy him, his family, and his empire completely. Next week, we pick up with the collapse of the Tsarist state in World War I, which will be followed by the year of two revolutions. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.